My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's Sustainability Editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shadow. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. (laughs) Regular listeners of this podcast may know that every show is my favourite. But seriously, this is my favourite. It really does have it all, a big, impressive location and a completely thrilling interviewee. This guest is a role model, a big deal and a right laugh at the same time. In this episode, the first in a mini-series of three shows tackling the important and very timely subject of modern slavery, and I promise making it accessible, you're going to meet my new girl crush, Baroness Lola Young of Hornsey. And by the way, next week we've got Safia Mini, which is very exciting. But Baroness Lola Young of Hornsey, amazing. She started out as an actor. She went on to become a professor of cultural studies and then the head of culture at the Greater London Authority. She's been a judge for the Orange Prize for Literature and also for the Observer's Ethical Awards. In 2004, she was appointed an independent crossbench member of the House of Lords. And there she founded the all-party parliamentary group on ethics and sustainability in fashion. In March, Lola co-hosted an event at the House of Lords with ASOS to look at modern slavery risks in fashion supply chains. And last year, she introduced a private member's bill that seeks to extend the reporting requirement of the Modern Slavery Act in the UK. Now, that act was introduced in 2015, and right now in Australia, we're going through a similar process. Here, the proposed bill would apply to businesses with a revenue of more than $100 million a year, and it would require them to publish annual statements looking at the steps that they're taking to address modern slavery in their supply chains and operations. The Law Council of Australia says it doesn't go far enough. More on that next week. This interview was recorded inside the House of Lords in London. How cool is that? Actually, we overran and we had to get out of our meeting room and lurk in a corner to record the last 10 minutes. And as you would know, the Houses of Parliament are a grand kind of gothic building. It's all stone and glass. So this last 10 minutes are a bit echoey, but you're not going to care because you are not going to want this conversation to end. 
Also, who gets to record a podcast in the House of Lords? Hello. Love it. Lola and I go deep into modern slavery. It's complex, so do check the show notes for further resources. You can find them at clairepress.com. And for those of you who are thinking, well, I never find them at clairepress.com, I'm finally churning through the backlog and getting them all up there. And I'm finally on top of it, so I'm pleased about that. But yeah, we talk about modern slavery and all of the heavy stuff around that. But it's not just that. We talk about football, (laughs) Grace Jones, diversity and fashion in the arts. And of course, we talk about clothes. Modern slavery is, of course, a depressing issue. But this episode is not depressing. It's all about unleashing your inner activist, understanding the issues and taking positive steps to do something about them. If you're an individual, there can be really small steps and they matter. If you're a business, there might be bigger ones. As Lola says, we can all do our bit in different ways. This is an inspiring, absorbing, challenging and ultimately delightful conversation. I just love Lola and you're going to too. Best Baroness I ever met. Only Baroness I ever met. Now, do get in touch on social media and let me know what you make of it all. I love to hear from you. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs Press and keep those ratings and reviews coming on iTunes too. They do make me smile. Hello. Hello. I am so Actually intimidated and excited to be doing this interview in here. In the House of Lords. In the House of Lords. That's um, not the bell tolling for anything horrible, so just ignore it. It would be good if it was something sort of with gravitas. It's probably just afternoon tea. No, it's not. Actually, what it means is that uh, a new person has stood up to speak. Every time somebody new stands up to speak, that little bell goes and then one of the doorkeepers steps outside of the chamber and says, Viscount Ridley! So interesting. I want to call you Lola. Go on then. Should I call you Baroness? No, 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 no. Please call me Lola. It is good to have a title. (laughs) I know. And certain times I use it. May we begin by just talking about where we are? Because... You just walked me through some pretty impressive surroundings. And I was saying I studied politics in the UK, but I've never been in here because this is the House of Lords and it's ever so serious. Can you just tell us where we are? Well, yes, it took me a while to sort all of this out. And actually, I'd never been here. Well, I think I've been here maybe twice before I was actually admitted to the grand chambers of the Houses of Parliament. So Houses of Parliament is actually located in the Palace of Westminster, which is one of the Queen's palaces. Therefore, that explains how grand it is. Lots of gold, lots of bling, if you like, lots of paintings and exquisitely designed wallpaper. And, oh, it it, it is, I mean, it is a sight to behold. And often, partly because of the scale of it, you do feel tiny, like you're this tiny little cog in a giant machine but actually when you think about it it is quite a responsibility it's a huge responsibility we're making laws here and obviously those laws can literally be matters of life and death so it's appropriate that it's this very serious space absolutely Mm. and it's interesting we talked when we walked through about that sense of history that you can't escape Mm. I mean you may well get used to it and tell me if you do but for me I walked in and thought it does make you take your breath in where you're like (gasps) because of the grandeur of it and we talked about the very tall doors Mm. and the art and it's very specific art power war yeah yeah no absolutely regalia 
exactly. And history, history, history. And those doors that you refer to, it's kind of interesting because I sort of think, oh, well, they must have must have been like those um, aliens, you know, in the movie. They must have been like <laughs> 16 foot tall in those doors. No, it's <laughs> to make you feel absolutely tiny yeah. as you walk through. And so you're really well aware of the power and everything in, in the building. And that's, yeah, that's what it is. Before we get on to the real purpose of this interview, which is to talk about fashion supply chains and your work in that area, I just got to ask about the robes because I was met at the door by a man in tails wearing, I'm going to look it up and share it, some excellent, what, what is he called? Was he in a red jacket? No, or was he was it? in black, but in then black. with a gold Okay, blue. so the black, this is a very interesting little story if you've got time for it. Sure. Okay, so apparently Queen Victoria, when her husband died, Prince Albert, she was absolutely devastated and, you know, mourned him forever and said oh, everybody in the court has to wear black for a period of mourning. But she died before she could rescind that. So that is why all those doorkeepers and attendants wear black still mourning the death of Prince Albert. That's what um, I was told. I do. I mean, this is a fashion podcast. Yeah. I'm fascinated by the history of clothes, context of clothes, and also what clothes say, how they yeah. speak. Yeah, I am too. And it's interesting, you know, without trying to do a kind of full segue, it's interesting here because there are both spoken and unspoken dress codes, particularly, as you might imagine, for women. And so some of us have been in a position where some comments have been made about what we've worn and um when i was no trousers sorry sorry when you say no trousers i had a very strange vision of actually wearing no trousers not a pretty thought but um no so trousers were frowned upon sort of formally until the 90s were they yeah apparently one of the labor women peers who came in when tony blair was um prime minister was told off by another peer uh, from a male mm. peer from elsewhere in the house i'm so glad we've moved on from that well somewhat i would say but i mean uh, I wouldn't say I was taken to task, but a comment was made about something I was wearing. And I said to the then Black Rod, look, what are you wearing? You're wearing black knee-length breeches, long white stockings. You've got a silver sword and this funny kind of jacket. Do you know what I mean? So there's a certain kind of dressing up that is allowed Absolutely. because it's traditional, it's historical and it's mainly male. And somehow particularly with women. Absolutely. One of the complaints that they made about the prospect of women coming in to the House of Lords in 1958 was... The year what, they stopped the um, debutante ball. That's right. It was a very interesting year, that. Very interesting. Wolfenden report on sexuality. A bit more important than the year they stopped the debutante balls. I read a novel. <clears throat> No, but they're all, they're all part of the mix. Yeah, right. all of that is part of the mix. But one of the um, sort of concerns uh, was that women would wear hats... And that would distract men from the tough political oh, decisions God. ahead. And now um, I just seriously. think, oh, but we still think that women can distract with their yeah, terrible ornamentation or yeah, sexy necklines yeah, or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, oh, Get dear. over it, guys. Get over it. You, <laughs> you became a peer in 2004. I did. I wonder if you might just very briefly, for listeners who perhaps don't understand how the system in Britain works with peerages, just explain what that means. Yeah, I'm always tempted to say, well, when you find out, let me know. <laughs> no, seriously. So what happened was when Tony Blair came into government in 97, he promised to reform the House of Lords and he, he reformed it, but in a very kind of restricted way. So one of the things was to get rid of most of the hereditary peers. But at the same time, he 
announced the much derided idea of the people's peers. So what that meant was, whereas previously to get into um, the crossbench peers, the independent peers, it was some mysterious thing that happened. You know, somebody would ring you up or tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, you were a knight or a dame or an OBE and now you're a peer. And you say, oh, okay. So, but with what he did was to kind of shape that into something much more processed so that you understood how you got to be there. So what they asked people to do was to apply. And and if you were nominated, you still had to apply. So you make a, you made an application, and that's what I did. I made an application, which was like applying for a big job, a chief executive job, loads of interviews, vetted by MI5, and then it's signed off by the prime minister, and then the queen, and then Bob's your uncle, Sally's your aunt. Here you go. Amazing and fascinating. Now we're going to get onto the work that you do. I mm. promise. Mm, I just right. have to say. The reason that I was so mad keen to interview you was because I watched a video of an address that you gave to graduates of the University of the Arts and I loved how warm and gorgeous it was. And you said, and I'm sure that's a very intimidating thing for those students to be sitting there at this last moment, I'm sure they're excited to finish, but you said, this morning, I'm not a great morning person and this morning I was getting ready, as you do, to Grace Jones singing. She's lost control. <laughs> it's such a great track and I do feel like at times when there's clothes everywhere and breakfast in the bathroom and all of that stuff, I have lost control. Thank you for admitting that that's how it is. Of course. Lots what of else? people try to say that it's not, so that they seem to be perfect. <laughs> no, no, you no. also invoked at the end of that speech one of my favourite ever records that I danced to all the time when I was a kid and it was Snap. I got the power. Yes. Yeah, that's a great one. It's a great one to say to students. Well, you know, it was true. I mean, I sort of soundtracked my life with lots of different music. And uh, yeah, Grace Jones to me was a great role model because there were so few tall black women, you know, in the media, in the public eye. And there was this one, not only was she tall and black, but she had her completely her own style. She was her own sex, as somebody put it. You know, she she just kind of broke all the rules and didn't seem to give a damn. And so that whole thing about she's lost control, which is actually quite a scary record when you listen to it I a listened lot. to it yesterday, yeah, just again, it's fab. Yeah, I mean, it, I love it, it's her great, so much. And it's, it's great rhythm in it and the words are great and everything. Yeah, so so she was a really important sort of icon in my life. Let's talk about You've Got the Power Mm. because we're here to talk about changing the world and about Mm. the possibility of shaping a future that we want to see, Mm. a fairer, more just fashion future in the context of this conversation. I want to ask you how politics and how legislation can help us to achieve what we want to achieve, which is a fairer, a more just fashion system, Mm. um, particularly around supply chains. Hmm. Well, that's a little question. After <laughs> snap, you got the power. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can we just play that record? No, <laughs> I'm so- going to so stop and play that record. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got the power. Hey, yeah, yeah. Right to the the whip, I snap attack, front to back. In this thing called rap, bigger like a double round double. Welcome back. (laughs) This is such fun. Um, Okay, what was I going to say? Um, Oh, yeah, yeah. How do you see the role that politics and regulation can play in ethical fashion? Well, I think they can play quite a big role 
But it's kind of difficult at the same time because what one doesn't want to do is to over-regulate, particularly something in the area of creativity. You don't want to say it's got to be like this, it's got to be like that. But by the same token, we cannot allow business uh, companies, organisations to run riot without any kind of consequences and without any sense of responsibility. So to me, there's a definite before Rana Plaza collapse of the building in Bangladesh and after Rana Plaza. Now, the fact of the matter was that there was already terrible things going on in Bangladesh mm. and elsewhere. There were a number of fires where hundreds of people were killed, but it was only when that you know, that one big tragedy that impinged on everybody's consciousness that people start to think, well, wait a minute, the clothes I've been buying from such and such a, a brand are actually been made in that place. So I remember asking a number of questions after uh, the Rana Plaza tragedy at our oral question time when we can question ministers and say, look, what the heck are you doing? How are you going to help support those companies that really want to change and do mm. something that's really good? And how are you going to punish, as it were, or what, what are you going to do to disincentivize those others from who, who apparently don't care? Until that point, I'm mm. imagining that fashion wasn't often raised in these hallowed halls. <laughs> um, well, it's interesting. Um, it must have been sometimes. Yeah, no, but... no. Well, very, very rarely, because I set up the all-party parliamentary group on ethics and sustainability in, in 2009? fashion. In 2009? In 2009. Was that? That's right. So that preceded, um, obviously, the Rana Plaza tragedy. But it was really interesting because um, I said, ooh, um, would you like to join me? Because you have to have a certain number of peers and MPs and from different parties, so you had to make sure it was genuinely representative across the House at that time. So I would say, ooh, how would you like to join my ethics and sustainability in fashion? APPG as we say and people say oh I don't know anything about fashion and I said well look you wear clothes right and actually I know that you're interested in environmental issues or I know that you're interested in labour law and I know that you're interested in international development so stop thinking of it as you know you've got to be an expert in fashion you don't have to be of course not all you need is kind of sense of some of these issues and in fact what was interesting was a lot of them had not made those kinds no, of connections with it's fashion. It's the word people say oh fashion fashion Frivolous, silly. Girly. Mm, and yet know. it's so obvious. I mean, I say it a million times, but I would think that it should be obvious that it's all, that it's massive business, that it's about the intersection with politics, with human rights, with, you name it, actually, the environment, pollution. Well, I, th I think on the first count that you said it's a massive business, I think now that's finally been recognised because people have done the math. You know, they've checked up and they've seen how much the creative industries as a whole contribute to GDP and the number of jobs tied up with fashion and retail is extraordinary. So if that were all to collapse, obviously it would be a total economic disaster. Well, then it's important. <laughs> then, yeah, yeah, exactly. But then, then that's the sole focus. So when you start to say, as I start to say and others around government, look, this is not on. Fashion is the second biggest polluter in industry. What? So when we started talking about the circular economy as a green thing in a debate, I stood up and, and talked about it in relation to fashion and people yes. kept turning around looking at me as if I was some exotic creature from somewhere else. I'm slightly exaggerating for effect here, but do you know yeah. what I mean? And in fact, some really prominent green campaigners who'd also spoken in that debate said to me afterwards, 
I didn't know that fashion was such a polluter. I didn't realise these issues were absolutely pertinent to fashion. I said, well, you better believe it. Mm. So that group was really mm. interesting in the end because a lot of people who wouldn't otherwise have wanted to engage with fashion could do so through that political lens. That parliamentary group, what exactly does it do? And goodness, why don't we have such a thing in Australia? I don't know why you don't have such a thing in Australia, Lawmakers but I can help listening? you set it up. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's very easy. So we have this whole system of all-party parliamentary groups, which if you don't mind, I'll shorten to APPGs. And the idea is to get people from across the house interested in different areas. And some of them are deeply, deeply serious and very authoritative. So we have one on runaway children who've been in care. We might have one on uh, genocide in a particular country or famine elsewhere. Are they there's, sort of above politics, the issues that you address, or well, is that not right, the right framing? There's a political consensus, I think, is what I would say. So it's a bit like on select committees where the party politics are set aside in the context of having a particular task to do, a particular yep. issue to think about, and that's what's more important than the party political divisions, and that's why they're such a good idea. Mm. They don't have an official status like a select committee, but they do have quite a lot of authority. Mm. And actually, if you don't tell anybody they're not a select committee, nobody will really know the difference. So, you know, you and can... And most listeners will listen to this and go, what's a select committee? Yeah, anyway, yeah. but I oh. will be sharing links in the show notes so that you can look this up. Very important, actually. Good tool structure. for people. Yeah. yeah I mean, just the way that these things are structured yes. is complicated, but it, it's important to understand it. They're all part of a, a system which I think is actually very alienating because if you don't know... You know, as soon as you say select committee or APPG, of course your eyes glaze over. But actually, these are tools to use. And this is what I found with the fashion industry. So when I said to the, some friends that I'd met in fashion, I said, OK, so do you think this might be a good idea? And they leapt at it. Mm. And interestingly, I tell you those people, Livia Firth, Ursula de Castro, Joss Whipple, Dillis Williams, Lucy Siegel, Carrie Summers, you know, and these people were, had been into this area of work for years before I came along the scene. But what was useful was for them to be able to say, there's a group in Parliament looking at this issue. It's amazing. So what we did was then, we tried, to, I always wanted these things to be much more creative and fun than a lot of the others, because, you know, I'm such a shy, retiring person. <laughs> draw attention to myself no but seriously so we would have events they the meetings would be like events and it was fantastic because we'd have lots of young people in fashion coming into parliament and inevitably i hope that even if one or two as a consequence thought well actually this politics thing is to do with me i can be involved in this in a way that doesn't compromise my sort of sense of fun or my interests or enthusiasm or whatever and also breaking down that barrier psychological barrier mm, mm. that these institutions are too remote for us to engage totally. with. And we know that we have across the world in Australia, certainly in the States here, a problem with apathy in young people because mm. they believe that maybe these institutions are too remote. It's too different to their day, to their lived life. Well, you see, I, I always resist this notion of apathy because what I've found, particularly over the last decade, is that young people are absolutely galvanised. They want to act and sometimes they do. The problem is that our political system mm. and the political parties within it don't have a clue. And, you know, you Thank can go... Thank you, you're right. It's not apathy. You can, no, it's you can go on Twitter all you like, you know, Conservative Party, Labour Party, Lib Dems, 
But if you don't have a handle on actually what is going on out there and what those young people are living through, what is the point? It's just, you know, it's just a change of medium. So it was good to have those people come in. And it was also good, although difficult, to get parliamentarians to engage because... Obviously, you know, to be fair, there's a lot of work to do here. Our main work in the Lords is scrutinising the legislation that the government pushes through over here. So the House of Commons make a law. Mm. We look at it and say, don't like that, don't like that. <laughs> oh, this bit's good. You know, keep that, throw that away, etc. That's our main job. So some people would see some of the work that I've been doing as a bit of a distraction from that. But I would argue against that. So there. Too right. So there. <laughs> I want to talk about the Modern Slavery Act, which Britain yes. passed in 2015. Mm-hmm. And Australia is currently in the process of looking at its own possibility of getting this legislation, mm-hmm. similar legislation enacted in Australia. Mm-hmm. You have proposed an amendment to that mm-hmm. law. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that it needs amending and that it doesn't go far enough? And can you talk us through some of this? Yes, I can talk you through some of it and I'll try to keep it kind of jargon-free. So my amendment to the Modern Slavery Act, which, as you quite rightly say, was um, passed in 2015, it's fair to say it was passed in a little bit of a hurry because we knew that the general election was coming up and we, had, we have a very strong cut-off point past which you can't discuss legislation. But everybody wanted this piece of legislation on the books. They wanted it to be passed. So I think, well a lot of us agree, that we passed stuff in that Act that if we'd had more time, Mm. we would have refined and tried to persuade the government to strengthen at the time. I should just ask you just Mm. to sum up just the bones Mm. of what the Act does. So one of the things the Act does is to bring together all other little bits of legislation that relate to things like forced labour, exploitative labour, abusive labour, child trafficking, uh, sex trafficking. There were few little bits of legislation dotted amongst other acts. But most importantly, what it did was said quite clearly, there is a crime called modern slavery. This is what it entails. These are the kinds of actions we're going to take. And actually, the punishments for them are going to be much, much more severe than they've ever been before. And that was absolutely key. But the bit that I was interested in is is a little bit less obvious perhaps, and it was to do with this supply chain issue. So section 54 of the Modern Slavery Act, it's a very short section actually, I do recommend it to you to read. I'll read it. Wonderful bedtime reading. Bedtime reading. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's a very short section and actually for a law it's written quite plainly. So basically what it says is that any any company with a turnover, financial turnover of £36 million or more, and in fact the £36 million wasn't specified at the time of the Act, it was something we came to after mm. consultation, but any, any company with a turnover £36 million or more must report on what it is doing to try and get rid of modern forms of slavery from its supply chains, throughout its supply chains. And there's a suggestion in that section 54 of the different headings to have a look at. So you could say, under training, we are training our staff to recognise the signs mm-hmm. of exploitative labour with children in our factories. Da, da, da. So you, you just kind of say under each heading, and there's six of those headings, then it has to be signed off by the board of directors, very important, because that means it comes from the top, right. it's not just a CSR thing. And it also has to be easily accessible from the front page of a website if, if the company's got one, which most, of course, now have. And there's various other things as well. But I come along and, and and well, actually, I shouldn't say I come along because it's not about me. Somebody actually mm-hmm. emailed me. In fact, I think it was um, 
think it was the um, BMA, the British Medical Association, right. emailed me and said, wait a minute, why aren't public bodies reporting under Section 54? And I said, yeah, why aren't they? And so at the time, this was one of the things we didn't have time to discuss yep. in any depth then. But once it'd been made an act, I thought that this is such a glaring omission. Surely the government mm. would be absolutely in favour of public bodies. Because if you think about it... The, what, what are some examples? But, well, okay, like local authorities, um, like the police, the armed forces, government departments, Transport for London here, and, and organisations like that. So they're not commercial companies, but they spend a heck of a lot of money in the private sector. So I think there was a recent estimate of something like the government departments alone spend £52 billion pounds. That is a huge amount. So if the government were to say, okay, all of you private contractors, and let's think about that, that's the people who collect your rubbish. It's the people who um, uh, may be laying roads for you, um, building the sidewalks and the pavements, uh, delivering on policing, etc, etc, delivering the care for adults, delivering care for mm. children. All of those people, if we said to all of those people, you cannot um, uh, be considered um, uh, for a contract unless you make sure you haven't got any, then those local, there's huge amounts of change that could happen through that. How prevalent is modern slavery? Because it's in every country. In every single country, it's estimated that there are at least some modern forms of slavery and exploitation going on. So the figure that's generally quoted is around 40 to 45 million people. The numbers are very upsetting. They are. What can you tell us about how that pertains to fashion? Right. So if you think about fashion, what are the features of the way that business is done in fashion? Well, a lot of the work is outsourced. So a brand is literally just the front bit, as it were. It's kind of almost literally the shop window of the process. But if you go way, way back down the supply chain to, let's say, a cotton T-shirt, it starts with that bit of cotton being grown in a field somewhere. I read the other day some dismal news or dismal facts that mm. sometimes cotton picking companies prefer the nubile hands of children to pick yes, the cotton they because they damage the plants less. Yes, yes. Oh, we can give you loads of things like that. It doesn't surprise me what you say about um, these things because unfortunately at the end of the day you stop being surprised. You can still be shocked and mm. I think that's important mm. but it, it's like you think, yeah, in a way I can see how that would happen. So with cotton, for example, in Uzbekistan, particularly over the last few years or so, they say they've cleaned up their act now but it was absolutely the case then that children were being taken out of school and students were taken out of college and public sector workers were taken out of the public sector to harvest the cotton across the summer. Now, so you had children carrying loads of like 25 kilos or so. And, and you sort of think, wait a minute, do I really want that in my t-shirt or in my skirt or whatever? I don't. So from if you think of from picking cotton all the way up the chain, you know, where where that cotton is ginned, where people, but it's exported and people make it into fabric and then the fabric is dyed and then the fabric, you know, so it goes on and on and on. And the interesting thing about the current business model that seems to be, it's not only is there's this, what I think of as a highly distributed supply chain right the way across the world entailing so many different countries. But, you know, the buttons might be so on your shirt somewhere different 
to where the shirt was actually made. And then if there's sequins on that, it goes to somewhere else. So not only, and this is why there's a big connection with the environmental movement, not only is it causing people suffering by having to work under terrible conditions, but it's also destroying the environment along the way. So some of the things that happen in clothing factories in some countries, and I'm sorry to say not just overseas, it's happening here as well. You'll hear of people being locked into rooms or factories or whatever to make clothing up, you know, up to the amount that they're supposed to make. People working for way below the minimum age. Do we know that's happening in the UK too? I'm afraid. I mean, we know it's happening in I'm Australia. I'm afraid we do. I'm afraid we do. In fact, I, was, I can't remember who it was, but I was talking with somebody the other day who was describing precisely this situation. And in fact, there's a study being done of uh, around the Midlands, but it's not even, everybody thinks in England, oh, it's in Leicester. Yes, it's in Leicester, but it's also in other places across the country. In Manchester too, I understand. Nobody wants to wear clothes that are built on someone else's suffering. And I would imagine that nobody in business wants to run a business that is based on exploitation. Mm. But because of the complexity of supply chains, we've seemed to have gotten to a place where we can collectively look away. Well, I think it's not just about the complexity. The complexity of the supply chains, to put it as one uh, friend and colleague put it, is because businesses have outsourced their responsibility. So, you know, the brand is the brand and somebody else does oh, all the making. Oh, they don't work for yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we think it's dreadful, but they don't work for us. Yeah, but they don't work for us. And, and if we only we'd known. And I say, why didn't you know then? Mm. You know, how come you, you, you can tolerate these things going on that you don't know about, uh, no matter who the people are or where they are? And I've also had people, you say, you say that, you know, who would tolerate this? I tell you, some people will because they will say to you under the guise of, oh dear, mm. isn't it sad? Oh, isn't it better that the children work in a clothing factory for 14 hours a day than be traded for sex. And I always say back to them, is that the choice you'd want all the children you know to have? Are you satisfied? Because if you think that that's an appropriate choice, then let me see what you'd do with your children or your sister's children or whatever, whatever. But if you just think that's okay because they're not you, then you're not a human, but you're not behaving or thinking in a humane way. We've now come to the kind of crux of this, the mm. nasty Mm-hmm. moral crux of this which is about how we look at different people's lives with different lenses according to who is valued more we know we do this yes of course we do i mean we i'm not meaning me no but, but we, we but know that we, us we're is, all implicated well, in it yeah actually and we all do it don't we i mean it was really interesting on a completely um different subject i noticed the other day that um and i'm not trying to say one Mm. is better than the other but i did see how the prominence given to 10 children who were shot at school in america was i mean that is a terrible act and we know why that keeps happening some of us at any rate that keeps happening um you know they said oh this is the the worst school shooting since Since the the last last one." one yeah and but at the same time a plane crashed killing 111 Cubans but that came second so we know news values you know you have to Right. More brown-skinned people have to die, unfortunately, in order to make the news. Even coming back to the Rana Plaza conversation, you know, I always try to avoid the phrase, the accident we needed no, to happen. We didn't need yeah, to happen. No, no. But the scale mm. of that was something that we couldn't look away from. But exactly. we had, as you mentioned before, looked away from the Tazreen fire. Mm, we exactly. looked away from previous fires. Exactly. Looked away from fires in Italy. 
Unfortunately, that's the way it goes. And so what you've got to think is, what is it about the business model that is so problematic and that allows people to think in that way? And so when companies sometimes say to me, oh, um, you know, Bart, we've got to deliver profit to our shareholders. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. At what cost? yeah, Yeah. Yeah, at what cost? And also I would say to them, well, look, you created this business model. If you want to continue to support the degradation of your fellow human beings, then put your hand up and say so. But if you don't, you've got to create an alternative business model that doesn't actually do that. That's not my problem. All I can do is help government, I hope, to find ways of supporting those who do clean up their act and frankly, you know, penalising those who don't. And if the government won't do that, I have to keep sort of jabbing them in the ribs and making them think about it until they do. Mm. But at the end of the day, you've created this mess. You've got to recreate something else that doesn't do that damage. So get on with it, basically. And some have. I mean, to be fair, I do see, because I work not only in the fashion sector now, as a result of sort of gaining a bit of profile on this, other sectors, and I've been working actually with football, which is very interesting because there's lots of parallels, although you might not think Never have thought that in my life. Never thought that, but there's football, the construction industry, um, food agriculture, all of these areas, high-risk extractive industries, of course, mining, which is something I guess you would know about in terms of Australia. I mean, extremely high risk for these forms of of labour abuses. When we talk about modern slavery, I think it can probably help us to understand the word slavery and to understand the historical context of the idea. That's such and the an, history. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I like the way you've come at that because a lot of people can kind of polarise people. So some people would say, especially from the Caribbean, it is not the same as transatlantic slave trade, what's happening today. This is a criminal activity based on making profit. And I think, yeah, well, that's exactly what the uh, transatlantic slave trade was. But I think the important word that sometimes people are using now is enslavement, because that suggests that the person concerned has not consented. And that is the key thing about being enslaved. Somebody enslaves you, you don't usually volunteer to be a slave. You don't volunteer to give away whatever rights you might have. In the old um, context, it was, you, you know, you had no freedom of movement, you had no freedom of congregation, you had no freedom to express yourself, you worked for the master, you weren't paid, you were treated abominably, you were brutalised and so on. And of course, you were kidnapped literally from your country. All of these features All of these features can be found in various forms and to various degrees. I think it's important to say that in contemporary forms of enslavement. So, for example, in the food sector, you may have seen a little while ago about Thai fishermen. I did. I was just reading about this the other day. Yeah. And it's it's a shocker, isn't it? So in order that we can have cheap prawns or whatever it is that they're fishing, these people who are mainly uh, migrants from, I think, from Myanmar into Thailand uh, are kidnapped. It was. They are taken. They have money extorted from them. Their families are threatened. They're taken... In some cases, haven't been on dry land for a year or or more. Or more. And not only that, the brutal conditions in which they're kept. I've got some images of them, you know, in these string hammocks, sort of like on top of each other. And then what really struck me was, which was exactly the same as the transatlantic trade, was that if you were sick or if you got beaten up so badly you couldn't stand and be useful anymore, 
there were people who were thrown overboard. Oh, God. And, you know, I didn't that, read that bit. Yeah, you know, that is a high price to pay for cheap fish or cheap prawns or whatever it is. So, you know, again, are we prepared to do that simply because it's happening over there somewhere and you don't have to look at that? You know, you can, you can imagine a scenario where instead of a happy beaming, you know, bearded fisher person on, on the front of a carton, there's these emaciated, sick people who aren't allowed to get onto the land or see their relatives or anything ever again. So that is the reality of some of these sectors. Do you think that racism is a key kind of aspect of this, maybe something we don't want to explore or mention? Yeah, well, I, I do think there is an element of, of racism. Well, there's a very strong element in some cases. Like, for example, you may have seen, because you seem to be remarkably well informed, I have to say, very pleased to, to hear that, um, that in uh, Libya, they were selling oh, Nigerian men on the streets. They were selling them at, you know, I can't remember the exact amount, but... You know, CNN report, very good piece of uh, journalism. And these guys are in shackles being sold on the streets of Libya. Now, Libya has form here. There's a history here. And there is a kind of certain kind in a certain kind of person from North Africa, complete total disdain for the darker skinned peoples below the Sahara. So that there is a strong element of racism there. I think with us in the West, it's maybe less formulated in most cases, but it is a, a little well, it's bit, systemic. it's out of sight, Without out of mind. Realizing it in yeah. some cases, yeah, and it well, is no, in loads of cases because you've got to examine it. I've recently been examining it, yeah. and trying to understand if it's where it is in me because it has to be everywhere because it's in society, and mm. I, you know, mm. and trying to make myself understand where where does this come from and how can we reframe it because we need to look at it head on, and it's horrible to look you, at head on. It is it's hard. I, yeah, I, I mean, I think there's an interesting thing here. Yes, I think there's undoubtedly sometimes an element of racism. There's another really interesting thing for me, which is about a contemporary person in, in the overdeveloped world, one might say, a complete disconnection from processes of manufacture and making. Okay, so what does a carrot look like? A carrot comes in a bag from the freezer in your local supermarket. You know, what does a um, piece of clothing is like? Well, it magically appears fully formed in your local store. I wrote that. In my book. Did you? Yeah, because that's exactly what it is. Just it's there on the hanger. Woo! Yeah. Magic. Yeah. And if you showed people a cotton bowl or, or whatever, or, or a plant where they make polyester from oil, you know, how can they relate to that? I've had people in, in, in supermarkets not even know, selling the stuff that don't even know that carrots have those green tops on them and ask me what that is, the, what that bit is on the carrot. So we're totally, totally divorced from all of that. And that's kind of 21st century life in the kind of society in which we live. So, and in a way, it's like it's too much to cope with. Do you know what I mean? If we started to think about what goes into making these lovely smartphones and tablets that we have? So when I heard about what happened to some of the people in China who are forced to um, make these the different components and who clean the screens with benzene, which was banned in Europe 40 years ago because it's carcinogenic, so what are we going to do? Are we going to not buy f smartphones or whatever? We're going to We're going decide to. it's too hard basket and look away. <laughs> yeah, 
But or the alternative, we need some tools. We need to feel that we've got some of the tools, though, Claire. I mean, you know, and I think to be fair, again, a lot of young people, and this is why I say they're not apathetic. They're the ones that pressure some of these big companies into doing stuff around this subject. Well, we can easily say we're not going to shop from you because we know that you're doing these things in despicable mm. way. Mm. Well, I think you know we've we tried to put it more positively <laughs> and say you know what we'd like to see. We love your clothes. We love your brand but what we'd really like to see the ways in which you can make it um, not dependent on ruining people's lives and societies because that's effectively what you're doing if you talk about in let's talk about international development for a little bit and why that is so important because if some of those countries that are now so-called underdeveloped you know what is it how can they invest in their future if whole cohorts of children are being taken out of school and made to work uh, for 14 hours a day so they're not learning to read, write, or being able then to develop into human beings who can, you know, contribute to the world in, in something more than the way that they currently do. They're going to continue to get diseases because there won't be enough doctors. They'll continue to be, you know, run down by broken down cars and so on and so forth. It's a nightmare. So let's recalibrate the whole thing. If you want to expand your markets into some of these places and yet you're killing the people, what are you going to do? Because sooner or later we will reach saturation point. We're near it now with goods and stuff mm. we don't know what to do we throw away particularly clothing we put more into landfill than we actually wear we so you know what are you going to do and also just on the moral ground let, let alone the, the business ground as I say when I go to a room I say hands up all those who agree that slavery is a really good thing well you know even if they thought that they're not going to say nobody that nobody thinks nobody it. really thinks that we hope well, some actually Well, you do, walk but... into a room and you say that, you get a good reaction. Yeah, you? yeah. So then you say, well, if they're then saying, oh, but it costs too much to do this or we don't have the capacity to do that. And you say, well, that means that you're doing it badly then right now and that you don't intend to change. So you do support slavery then, don't you? And so you've got to change people's mindsets or try. Try is what we can. Including my own. Have Look, mine. we buy the stuff. You know, let's be honest, we do buy the stuff. So we do have to think about why we buy so much, what we think it is that we're buying. You know, it's a little sliver of happiness <laughs> invested in a pair of shoes, you know. All right, you sure it's all right? It'll be fine. We actually had to leave the interview room because we had overrun and there were people waiting to do work in there. So now we have come into a bit of a a bit of a corridor <laughs> in these hallowed halls. So it's a little bit echoey, but I think that that adds to the atmosphere. And outside I can see, actually, view of the bins. Not that glamorous out there. No, and you can see all the scaffolding, <laughs> which is very pretty. But Lola, mm. um, I wanted to change tack mm -hmm. in order to finish and ask you about representation. Oh. Because right now, fashion is having, I think, an awakening around a much needed long awaited awakening around diversity we're having a lot more conversations about the need to push forward on this mm -hmm. and I genuinely think that we've reached a bit of a tipping point where we're not going to accept anymore that singular view of the skinny white girl on the runway, the skinny white girl on the magazine cover, the skinny white girl on every kind of element, it's not enough because that's not who we are as, as a society and mm -hmm. we want to see ourselves reflected back at, it, at ourselves 
Yeah. I wonder if you would like to comment a bit about that um, in view of the work that you did on your thesis. I mean, you wrote your thesis on film about this Who stuff. Who are these people who read, actually read what you've written? I read the first page, <laughs> in which you talked about... I read more than the first page, actually, I read it. But I read the first page and noted it down because you talked about, to put it in... So, your thesis was about representation in British film, but you put it in context with the personal and you said that when you were a kid and you were acting, you were always cast as the witch. Mm, and then when well, you grew up, yes. the bus conductor, come on. Yes, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, in fact, it was um, in, in Playground... Um, uh, little, you know, playlets that we would do. I was always the witch chasing people and people would scream. And because at that time, I think I was the second black kid at school. It's because they were talking a long time ago now. Yeah, and it was routine for... I was telling somebody the other day and they couldn't believe it that teachers would call me the darkie. You know, that was, that was it. You know, that's how it was. So in one sense, of course we've moved away from a lot of that kind of stuff. But progress is never quite linear and straightforward in the way that you would want it to be so that you can have you know lots of bad things going on at the same time as having some good things um, happening but as regards to representation it's good that people are, are thinking and talking about it but we still have a long way to go it's interesting in the examples you gave they're all prefaced by skinny and so whatever you still have to be skinny but we're still fixed on that trope in in fashion because you know designers saying well clothes only look good on skinny bodies what What? you know we know that this is garbage but look good i mean by whose criteria and so if you don't fit into that particular frame literally then does that mean that no clothes will look good on you well if that's the case why am I bothering to buy them mm-hmm. so you know you can't have it both ways and what what people what annoys me about all of these things is I remember when when I was in acting we used to have this argument with people in the ballet world in classical ballet you can't have people of African descent because their shapes are different and they they would stand out too much in the skin colour and uh, uh. there's always an excuse there's always a reason why it can't be done and or yet in, when it's done and becomes accepted nobody bats an eyelid or in um in on the stage when we look at historical context oh well I'm sorry there were no black oh how many times have I heard that and I heard that a lot when I was acting and until you started to read books like Staying Power or The Black Elizabethans or any of those books that came out and gave great detail of black communities that were in Britain since Roman times, then we managed to debunk. And even now, when you put black people in historical plays, some commentators will say, oh, it's political correctness gone mad. So, you know, you can't, you can't win in some respects. It's an evolutionary thing. It will change. And it has changed a lot. You've had black actors playing historical characters. And it's like, to me, audiences and um, people out there are far ahead of the people who are the gatekeepers of representation. Absolutely. But I, do, I just want to bring that back to fashion because when mm. we talk about ethics in fashion, mm. I think this is part of the conversation. Well, it, it, it's interesting because a number of people did write to me and say, why aren't you looking at why there aren't more black models instead of, or as well as all the other work? And I say like, because there's only so many so hours in a day. But also, that I didn't feel that was a priority to me. It's to stop people having harm done to them is the kind of biggest priority. But now the two things have kind of melded because... 
I met somebody who talked about how young women are lured into the sex trade by being told they're going to become models or they're going to work in the beauty industry. So somebody goes to the village, um, asks the parents to pay for accommodation and travel. We're going to take your girl. She'll be a big hit in Rome and London. And she ends up in Russia um, in the sex trade and um, horrible things happen to them, as you might imagine. Or they are taken, because they wouldn't know whether they're in Europe or, you know, Western Europe or not. So, or they are actually taken to Western Europe and put to work in factories, 14, 15 hours a day, working and living in horrendous conditions. Everything's connected then, and then it's all about power. It is all about power, but even those who get into the modelling trade. So can you imagine, if you're a 14-year-old girl, from a remote village in Central African Republic and somebody puts you in a hotel in New York and you've got nobody with you, you don't speak the language, how vulnerable are you? And you remember earlier I mentioned football, I didn't, I mentioned football earlier. Same thing happens to boys, only it's through football. Really? It's a similar, very similar paradigm. So what I'm doing now is working together. These are the things that people desire. They say that, you know, you find that these traffickers, they find a village where there's one television set. So too poor for everybody to have a television set, but not so poor that there isn't one. So they can all see the lifestyle of the rich and famous across the world and aspire to that. That's the, you know, the fantasy of capitalism, isn't it? So along comes a trafficker and says, your um, girl there, oh, I'm sure she'd make a great model and look how much money she could earn. She could be sending money, she'd be like Naomi Campbell, she'll send money back to so if you just give us the money for travel and accommodation sometimes they just get abandoned at the airport and they just don't know where they are or, or what to say just or how the to speak money for the yeah just the, just the money for the accommodation and travel please sometimes they get on a plane and are abandoned at an airport at the other end but others who are actually taken into the modern world are horribly exploited and of course you know, it's a depressing and lonely situation to imagine. Let's finish up with something positive. Yes, there's lots. I got the power. <laughs> <laughs> so gonna play it again. Yeah. When I was a kid, that was my favourite. <laughs> that and pump up the jam, pump it up. <laughs> Don't get me singing, please. Okay, not getting you singing, but back to we do have power mm -hmm. and talking about power in this powerful building which is so echoey but you're going to forgive us aren't you because it's an important conversation talking about taking the power ourselves mm -hmm. and the agency that us as individuals as consumers that word mm -hmm. have mm -hmm. what what would be your takeaway on how listeners who are thinking these particularly this issue around human trafficking and modern mm -hmm. slavery is so overwhelming and sad and stressful and mm. what can we do? It, it depends on who you are as to what you can do. Obviously if you're in a position of power, use it for the good, uh, for the greater good. That's, that's kind of easy. People in my position, it's easy. Get on top of some of these issues, find out what's going on and see who you can corral into supporting uh, actions for change, whether that be through regulations, legislation, whatever. That, that's kind of easy. Then you've got a whole bunch of people and I'm thinking mainly of women now because that's where the, still the bulk of the fashion industry is targeted at. If you think of women who have some money, not don't have to be stonkingly rich, but you can make your choices. And you can say to, you can go to your favourite brand and say, 
Can you tell me, what is it you're doing to combat um, modern slavery? That's all you need to ask. So it's a bit like, who made my clothes? What are you doing about modern slavery? And then I would say to the brands, you need to brief your staff so that they understand the nature of that question. Because when I've been into shops and asked them, um, not quite as um, uh, outright as that, but certainly, do you know what happens in your supply chain? And you get a kind of, uh, no, um, but we give money to the homeless. You know, that's not good enough. So you need to brief your staff because also they need to understand what it is that they're selling. And so people who have a little bit of money can make the, their choices. I think it's, where it's really difficult is for people who don't have hardly any money at all. As I've been arguing to government, you, you can't say it's down to consumers to change things. If I've got four kids on a Saturday morning and I've got to buy a new school uniform for them for next term and they're all shouting out and running around the ceiling, with your I'm mother. not going to be comparing anti-slavery statements between one shopper or another, am I? You know, I'm going to be just get out they get the stuff and get in so we need information and ideally we need some kind of scheme although I kind of hesitate to say this because it's so fraught but we need something that will alert the um, consumer and enable them to move from being just a passive recipient of all marketing and you must have this and you must have that it doesn't matter where it's come from to much more active consumers mm. so that at least if, if you say I haven't got very much money so all I can afford is these t-shirts um, for £2 each just sort of think and if you try and think that in relation to your child so think will what is the true cost in, you know, to quote the film, what is the true cost of what it is I'm buying? But I do understand how people who, who are really hard pressed on that front, it's much more difficult. So for those of us who have power and or money to often go together, you know, let us be doing something. And I think where those people might be able to do something is to say to government, you've got to help us. We don't have the wherewithal. We, we haven't got money or the power. But you, the government, have got to help us by eliminating from the playing field altogether those who, who, are, who aren't conforming to this. Because where I feel sorry for the brands that are working really, really hard on this, and then some joker comes up, you know, selling trousers for £5 a pair, and you sort of think, well, there's no way that that is that somebody at the end of that supply chain is being properly paid. So, yeah, government's got to do its bit. We've all, we can all do our bit in different ways, but it's helping people to understand the ways in which they can do things. And all together, and understand together. that not, no one person can solve it, but also that there is power in knowledge and yeah, asking absolutely. questions and learning. We'll share a bunch yeah. of links at the end of this. And, and also, just to say quickly, that I think, you know, we've talked about young people quite a bit. To me, that's where all the hope and positivity lies because I've had so many come to me and say, what can I do to help? I don't know anything about it. What can I do to help? Or I've done this and that. Would this help you? And I think that power, because they've grown up in a system that didn't exist when I was a kid. We didn't have high street fashion stores. We didn't have fast fashion. There was like one season change a year. We made our own clothes, whether we glued them up or sewed them up or whatever, we made our own clothes. That is totally different now and we can never go back to that. So what is it that we can do within this new framework to change and make a different paradigm for the next generation? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been great. No, no, thank you. No, no. <laughs>